Chapter 20 is acute diabetic emergencies. An introduction, over 10 million Americans have been diagnosed with diabetes. So it's a very prominent disease. Diabetes can cause changes in mental status related to alterations in blood glucose. So with a diabetic emergency, something's going on with the patient's blood sugar. It's either too high or too low. Both of those can cause issues for our patients. Acute diabetic emergencies can be life-threatening, and prompt recognition and care are going to be critical when dealing with a diabetic patient. Not only is there acute problems with major alterations in the blood sugar uh, problems, but the, just having diabetes and can cause long-term complications for the patient as well. It makes them more prone to certain medical conditions later on. And diabetes also complicates medical and trauma conditions as well. It makes it harder for them to heal, to recover. So that diabetes, again, just kind of wreaks havoc, even if their diabetes is relatively under control. So understanding diabetes mellitus, under normal circumstances, hormones control blood glucose level in the body. So where we get our glucose from is from our food. We intake glucose, carbohydrates, etc. Our body breaks it down, breaks down those sugars into glucose for the body to use. And there's hormones that our body releases in order to help regulate that. With diabetic emergencies, it results from abnormalities in blood glucose control in which the body cannot metabolize the glucose. And the main hormone that causes problems or causes diabetes is a lack of insulin production. So the patient just does not either... One or two things happen. They either are not producing any insulin from the body or they're not producing enough insulin in the body. So glucose, sugar, carbohydrates are the primary energy source for the cells. Again, those complex carbohydrates come into the body from our food. Your body breaks those down into simple sugars, again, primarily glucose for the use of the cells. Again, remember glucose is normal, is needed for normal cellular metabolism and cell function. Regulation of blood glucose level is critical for again, normal cell function. And brain cells can only use glucose for energy and cannot function when glucose is inadequate. So if we start depriving the brain of glucose, it is going to start malfunctioning extremely quickly once it runs out of uh, glucose. While altered mental status is a very common symptom of hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Low blood glucose results in, again, altered mental status. And prolonged low blood glucose can lead to brain cell death. So if we have somebody that has low blood sugar, we want to, if we can treat it with giving them more glucose, we want to treat it quickly before we have permanent brain damage. So excess glucose in the cells causes water to enter the cell, which worsens head injuries and strokes, 
as well. That's another thing that we have to think about. If we have somebody with high blood sugar and they have a head injury or they're having a stroke, it can actually make that stroke, that head injury worse. Now, there's nothing we can do for it, but it is something to keep in mind. With high blood glucose, glucose is excreted in the urine. It's large. Water will follow glucose. So water is going to go along with it, leading to dehydration. So your body realizes, hey, there's too much glucose in the blood. I need to get rid of some of it. How it's going to get rid of it is through urination. So a common symptom of hyperglycemia is constant, frequent urination. It's also drawing water with it when it moves into the urine so it can lead to dehydration. And that's one of the things that we are concerned the most in a pre-hospital setting with hyperglycemic emergencies is going to be the dehydration that often accompanies it. So hormones that control blood glucose levels. Again, that primary hormone is going to be insulin. And patients with diabetes have problems with their pancreases providing and producing insulin. So insulin is produced in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. And insulin is secreted when blood glucose levels are high. So your body is constantly monitoring glucose levels in the body. When it realizes, hey, the cells aren't getting enough glucose or we're starting to run low on glucose, the body's going to send a signal to the pancreas to release more insulin that is going to secrete. I'm sorry, as the blood sugar is getting high, insulin is going to get secreted to drop down the glucose level. And without insulin, little glucose can enter the cells. So we think of insulin as the gatekeeper. With Without insulin, glucose stays in the blood and cannot enter the cells. Insulin is needed for the glucose to move from the blood into the cells where it, where it is needed and it can be used up. And glucose remains in the bloodstream, resulting in elevated blood glucose levels. So oftentimes, insulin levels and glucose levels are inversely related. If we have low glucose levels, I'm sorry, low insulin levels, we're going to have high glucose levels. If we have blood glucose levels, if we have high insulin levels, too much insulin, we're going to have low blood glucose levels. So again, it is insulin is the gatekeeper. Without insulin, glucose cannot move from the blood into the cells to be used. So in this case, we have insulin is present. So insulin binds to that insulin receptor that opens the gate, allowing glucose to enter the cells, allowing those cells to use that for energy production. In this case, we don't have insulin. So no insulin is available. So this, that gate remains closed meaning this glucose cannot enter the cells to be used, and that glucose is staying in the blood. So we're going to have an elevated blood glucose level when we check their blood sugar because it's all there in the blood and it's not being used up. Instead of metabolizing glucose, and in this case, glucose is what's getting metabolized for energy production. In this case, since there is no glucose in the cells, 
your cells have to go to its backup system. So instead of metabolizing glucose, it's going to start metabolizing fat. Other hormones, glucagon. This is secreted when blood glucose levels are low. Again, your body's constantly monitoring. Insulin is going to be secreted when your blood glucose levels are high. When your blood glucose levels drop, glucagon is going to get released. And it functions to increase and maintain the blood glucose level by converting stored glycogen and other substances into glucose and releasing it into the blood and liver. So normal circumstances where if we take in more glucose than what our body needs, your body is going to store that away for later on. It's going to turn it into glycogen and it's going to store it for this type of instance. So those excesses are stored. Glucagon is released. That glycogen is then released, converting into glucose. And again, it's just going to try to maintain that homeostasis. Your body's going to try to maintain those normals throughout the body, including blood sugar levels. Epinephrine does play a role in this as well. Epinephrine is released in the body when blood glucose levels are extremely low. Once epinephrine gets released, that inhibits insulin secretion and promotes the release of stored glucose from the liver as well. And we've already talked about some signs and symptoms that we see on patients that are uh, caused by that release of epinephrine. So it goes true for diabetics as well, not only shock, but diabetic patients. Since insulin is, I mean, sorry, epinephrine is getting secreted, some of the signs and symptoms we see with hypoglycemia is directly related to epinephrine relates, cold, clammy skin, and tachycardia. So normal metabolism and glucose regulation. So again, the normal blood glucose range is 80 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. Your body, everybody's body is going to be a little bit different, but that's where your body is going to try to maintain your sugar levels at, between that 80 to 120 mark. As your body's constantly monitoring those glucose levels, as glucose increases, your body is going to secrete insulin to drop it back down to its normal level. Between meals, blood glucose levels drop out. So we eat lunch, insulin is going to get secreted because we just ate. We have an increase in glucose levels. Now we go several hours without eating. Now our blood sugar is starting to fall down. Body's again constantly monitoring that. It realizes, hey, blood sugar is dropping low. So it's going to release glucagon. Glucagon is secreted to increase and maintain the blood glucose levels as it begins to fall. Again, your body's trying to maintain homeostasis, the normal. So this is what normal glucose regulation is going to look like. So we wake up and we eat breakfast. So we eat a meal. After we eat, we have a large influx of glucose in our body. Our blood sugars are going to start rising. It's going to get above 120 to 140 milligrams per deciliter. Again, our body is constantly monitoring this. It realizes, hey, sugar's going up. We need to drop it down. So we're going to secrete insulin. Insulin's getting secreted. Cells are able to now use more of that glucose. More of that glucose is able to get metabolized. Uh, and it's going to start burning it off. So it's going to start dropping. Again, excess as well that we have, that's going to get stored in the liver and 
the form of glycogen. So again, we ate our meal. Now we're going several hours without eating and our blood sugar is gradually starting to drop. Once it starts dropping, gets below a certain level, your body realizes, hey, something's going on. Our sugar's low. We need to get it to increase. So glucagon is secreted. That glucagon, again, is going to cause glucose, non-hypocarbohydrates produce glucose. So glucagon releases that glycogen and other ways trying to increase that glucose level. Again, blood sugar level is increased and maintained. And again, that cycle is just constantly repeating itself. With a patient with diabetes, now we're starting to have issues in this normal regulation. So we wake up in the morning and we eat a meal. So now our blood sugar is starting to increase because we ate the meal. But since we have diabetes, we're not producing enough insulin or no insulin. So no insulin is getting secreted. So our blood sugar levels are continuing to rise and they're not beginning to fall. Not only that, without insulin, our cells cannot use the glucose that's in the blood. They cannot use it because it has no ways of entering the cell. So blood, our blood glucose levels never begin to drop. They constantly stay elevated. More glucagon is secreted because your cells are still starving of glucose. It's in the blood, but the cells cannot use it because it, there's no insulin to let it into the cells. So your cells are signaling to the brain, hey, we need, we need sugar, we need glucose, so glycogen is still getting secreted. So sugar continues to rise. Again, that's causing glucose to increase even further. And again, it's just a cycle. The sugar is constantly rising throughout the day. So checking blood glucose levels, testing the blood glucose level with a glucometer. Again, what we consider a normal reading is 80 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. And when interpreting the reading, determine the last time the patient ate or drank anything. So if they just now ate something and we're checking it, especially if it was very high in carbohydrates or high in sugar, we're probably going to expect their sugar is probably going to be a little higher than normal. If they've gone several hours without eating, now it may be a little bit lower than what we consider normal or expect. A patient is considered hypoglycemic when their blood sugar drops below 70 milligrams per deciliter or less with signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. So they need to be symptomatic before we start treating hypoglycemia. Hyperglycemia is a blood glucose level above 200 milligrams per deciliter. And typically it's going to be much higher than that before somebody seeks medical care or calls an ambulance due to hyperglycemic emergency. So testing the blood glucose level with the glucometer, again, we've already practiced this in class. Find your glucometer, get your equipment ready to go, make sure that we cleanse the site with alcohol, allow the alcohol to completely dry before we make that stick. Perform your that finger stick. Again, textbook says to waste the first drop of blood. I've done been in EMS for years and never seen a single provider ever waste the first drop of blood. And then second drop or first, go ahead and uh, put it on your test strip. And then you'll get your reading. 
Some key things that we do need to know about glucometers. They may vary by manufacturer. There may be a little bit different operating procedures. Vast majority of them, though, they will turn themselves on as soon as we stick the test strip in there. Everyone that I've ever seen does have stored memory that you can go back and check the last sugar that you took in case it turns off before you got the reading as well. The test strips are very dependent are very dependent on based on manufacturer. So different types of test strips will not work for different types of glucometers. You need to make sure you have the right test strips for your glucometer. Be familiar with the type that your service uses. UMCMS, they use the exact same glucometers that we practice with in class. Some glucometers do require periodical calibration. Uh, we don't really calibrate our glucometers, but we do check them every week to make sure that they are getting within normal readings. So we have test solution that we have to test our glucometers with both a low and a high. And if it's outside of the range of what that test strip is supposed to show us, then we just typically throw the glucometers away and get a brand new. They're relatively inexpensive. And sharps, we're dealing with lancets. Those are sharps. Utilize safety lancets if available. Before safety lancets really became popular, the number one cause of dirty needle sticks in EMS was from lancets. So we have to be uh, very careful of that. Give me one second, guys. Hey, somebody's calling me and I need to take it. Okay, sorry about that. It was my kid's doctor. So again, the, the used to be the number one cause of dirty needle sticks in EMS was from lancets. With safety lancets now that covers the needle after the use, we don't see it as frequently. Uh, just, so we need to make sure we dispose of the sharps immediately into a sharps container. And a general rule of thumb with any type of sharp is you do not hand off sharps. I'm not going to hand a dirty needle to my partner to throw in the sharps container. If I have it in my hand, I'm going to be the one that throws it in the sharps container. So diabetes mellitus, it's a disturbance in the metabolism of carbohydrates, fats, and protein and proteins. And it results from number one cause is a lack of insulin secreted by the pancreas. Another cause of diabetes can be the inability of cell receptors to respond to insulin to allow glucose to enter the cell. So again, vast majority of the time though, it is because of a lack of insulin that is secreted. So the patient may have a high blood glucose level, but the cells are getting deprived of glucose. Again, so I'm not, my body's not producing any insulin. So every time I eat, my blood glucose level continues to rise. So I got all this glucose in my blood, but without insulin, that gate remains closed and the cells are not able to use the glucose. Does that 
makes sense what I'm saying. Just because it's high in the in the blood, still not being able to get to the cells to be used where where it's needed at. So cells are still getting deprived of glucose. Big exception to this is the brain. Your brain cells do not require insulin to use glucose. So the rest of our body is getting deprived and is getting starved of glucose because we don't have any insulin, but our brains are still getting plenty of glucose. So things like altered mental status, we don't see that in hyperglycemic emergencies until it gets extremely high, or we start seeing alterations in mental status due to other causes that are brought on by the high blood sugar. But again, your brain cells do not require insulin. And excessive glucose is excreted by the kidneys. They draw large amounts of water with it as well. So we have excessive water loss causing dehydration. And dehydration goes hand in hand with hyperglycemic emergencies. So with hyperglycemic emergencies, we see the three Ps. That is polydipsia, which is an excessive thirst, polyuria, which is excessive urination, and polyphagia, which is excessive hunger. So patients with high blood sugar, that's typically what they're complaining of. They're always thirsty. They're also peeing a lot. And again, they're always has that sensation of being hungry as well. So type, there's two types of diabetes. We have type 1 and type 2. Type 1 diabetes is also referred to as insulin-dependent diabetes and is abbreviated IDDM. So in type 1 diabetics, this is where the pancreas does not produce or secrete any insulin. So since the body is not producing insulin, they are required to take insulin injections, either through sub-Q, injections, or things like insulin pumps. Again, the patient must take insulin to regulate blood glucose levels, and it's through injection or through an IV pump, or not an IV pump, but an uh, insulin pump. Peak onset of diagnosis of a patient of insulin-dependent diabetes is ages 10 to 14 years of age. That's why they often call it juvenile diabetes, because it's typically diagnosed in kids. And remember, if your body cannot metabolize glucose, its backup is to metabolize fat. So since their bodies are constantly metabolizing fat, type 1 diabetics typically have a very lean build. And this is important, and you need to know this as well. Type 1 diabetics are prone to a hyperglycemic emergency that is known as diabetic ketoacidosis, which is abbreviated DKA. Type 2 diabetes, often referred to as non-insulin-dependent diabetes, or NIDDM. So in this case, the, the pancreas does produce his insulin. Oftentimes, though, it's just not enough to keep up with demand. So patients use oral medications, diet, exercise, rather than insulin injections to manage blood glucose levels. Patients that get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes are usually middle-aged or older and 
overweight. They just kind of throughout their lives made the pancreas work so hard to the point where it's starting to fail and not able to no longer keep up. Type 1 diabetics are prone to DKA. Type 2 diabetics are prone to hyperglycemic hyperosmolar syndrome, HHS. It may also be referred to as hyperglycemic hyperosmolar non-ketonic syndrome or HHNS. HHS is kind of the newer terminology. And you need to know that it's definitely going to be on your test. Type 1 diabetics, DKA. Type 2 diabetics, they're prone to HHS. So diabetics are prone to diseases and disorders of blood vessels as well. Again, that constant high glucose levels does damage to the blood vessels. So they are more prone to heart attacks, strokes, and renal failure or kidney failure. And if you go into a dialysis, dialysis center, everybody in dialysis has kidney failure. The vast majority of them in there, that kidney failure was caused from diabetes. So acute diabetic emergencies, and we're talking about acute diabetic emergencies, there are either be one of two issues. Diabetic emergencies is either going to be hypoglycemia, where the patient has a low blood sugar, or it's going to be a hyperglycemic emergency where the patient has high blood sugar. Both conditions can be life-threatening, must be treated properly. However, hypoglycemic emergencies are much more dangerous and they will kill a patient faster than hyperglycemic emergencies. So us, we really worry more about hypoglycemic emergencies than hyperglycemic emergency. So hypoglycemia. Majority of the time we see hypoglycemic emergencies in type one diabetics. Those are the ones that are taking the in insulin injections. So that's those are the ones that are more likely to have drops in their blood glucose levels. And it results from ex excess insulin that the patient takes to manage their diabetes. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're taking more insulin than they're prescribed, but they're taking more insulin than what is needed at that time. And that's why diabetes can be very hard to manage because that it, they have this dose that they're supposed to take, but that's also dependent on, well, what are they eating? How are they eating? If they're sick, that can cause their sugar to drop as well. If they're exercising heavily or out in the hot sun, that's going to cause their sugar to drop faster. So diabetes can be very hard to manage those glucose levels. So again, when it says excess insulin, doesn't mean overdosing on insulin. Now that can cause it, obviously, but they're just taking more insulin than is required. And remember, insulin or glucose is always going to be inversely proportionate to the insulin levels. So in this case, we have low insulin level or high insulin levels. So our blood glucose is going to be low. In a severe case of hypoglycemia, it is referred to as insulin shock. It's not a true type of shock, but it mimics signs and symptoms of shock with the diaphoretic skin, pale skin, and the tachycardia. And diaphoresis, patients with low blood sugar, they tend to sweat very, very heavily. So patho of hypoglycemia. Patient takes insulin, 
but doesn't eat a meal or doesn't eat a proper meal. They eat a very light meal. Again, means there's too much insulin compared to the glucose intake, so sugar is going to be low. Patient takes their insulin, eats a meal, and drastically increases their activity. So they take their insulin like they're supposed to, they eat like they're supposed to, like they're supposed to, but now they go out and work in the heat for several hours when their body's not really used to it. Cassie, do you have a question? No, I was just messing with it. Okay. Or if the patient takes too much insulin, they took their med their insulin this morning, forgot, took it again pretty quickly after. Or a lot of these insulin doses may be sliding scale that they take this much units of insulin depending on what their blood glucose level is right now. And they just get that calculation wrong and they accidentally take too much. You'll see patients try to kill themselves by overdosing on insulin as well. And if I ever had to kill somebody, it's probably the way I'd try it. Try to get away, away with it. Can occur in type 2 diabetics from the effects of the oral medications, but again, much more common in type 1 diabetics. So assessment findings, what are we going to see in our patients? Again, low blood glucose level, we're depriving that brain of glucose, so it's going to start malfunctioning. Altered mental status occurs from low blood glucose levels to the brain. So patient may have confusion, disorientation drowsiness, all the way up to completely unresponsive. Hypoglycemia can cause combativeness, and oftentimes we do have to fight with these type of patients. They get very combative and fight us. Yeah. Hypoglycemia can also cause seizures. So again, any seizure patient, we're going to check their blood sugar just to rule that out as their cause of their seizure. And again, it doesn't matter if they have a seizure disorder and we know it's not their blood sugar. We're going to do it just to cover all of our bases. And again, low blood sugar can mimic the signs and symptoms of a stroke. So any stroke victim or suspected stroke, we also check a blood sugar to rule that out. The other signs and symptoms that we see, again, are going to be from the epinephrine release. So the cool, moist, diaphoretic skin and the tachycardia. Very important in determining the difference between hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia, if we don't glucometer especially, hypoglycemia has a rapid onset. They were fine, and then pretty quickly, they start having confusion, combativeness, sweating heavily. And again, this can normally occur over just a matter of minutes. These patients, especially Long-term diabetics that have dealt with it for years can get the phenomenon known as hypoglycemic unawareness. So it's over time, the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia can change as the body gets used to low glucose levels. So this patient constantly has these big fluctuations in their glucose, their sugar routinely drops. Over time, your body kind of builds up tolerances to that where we can have a patient that has pretty low blood sugar, where again, their body's kind of used to operating on that. So they're pretty asymptomatic or totally asymptomatic and have absolutely no complaints. And this can allow the blood glucose levels to drop very significantly to a very dangerously low levels before the patient even realizes their sugar is beginning to drop and they start 
become symptomatic. And again, their body just gets used to operating with low blood glucose levels. This is also helps kind of explain why you can have a patient, again, lowest than 70, we start thinking about treating if they're symptomatic. I've ran on patients with a blood sugar of 50 where they're completely unresponsive snoring respirations. So pretty dramatic, obvious symptomatic. Then I've ran on patients with a blood glucose of like 15 that is completely asymptomatic other than I know I'm a diabetic and I just know my blood glucose is getting low. So again, it can signs and symptoms can range very wildly uh, from what their bodies are used to. So our care for a hypoglycemic emergence. So we come up to the patient, we check their blood sugar, we know it's below 70 and they're symptomatic. We're going to try to treat it. So we have to categorize the patient as, are they unresponsive, unable to swallow, or unable to follow commands, or alter mental status, but responsive, able to swallow, and able to follow commands. We have to determine, is this patient a candidate to receive oral glucose or not? If they're able to follow our commands, we trust their ability to swallow and maintain their own airway, now we can give them oral glucose. They're completely unresponsive, won't swallow on command, or we don't trust giving them anything by mouth, then we can't give them oral glucose. So those patients that cannot receive oral glucose, we're in a supportive measures at first at least, establish an open airway, O2 sats at or above 94%, the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to ventilate them with the BVM. Check your blood sugar levels. If it's low, again, we know it's for sure hypoglycemia, and we can request ALS backup. Again, ALS, advanced oral paramedics can start an IV, give the sugar through the IV. And this is a true life threat. So if we can't get their sugar up, it's, it is going to be rapid transport to the hospital. So if we can't give them more glucose, it's supportive measures, request ALS backup, rapid transport to the hospital. That's all we're going to be able to do for them. If they are a candidate to receive more glucose, they are following commands, they're still can have some confusion, but they're following commands and we trust their ability to swallow and protect their own airway. Again, primary assessment, still priority, establish airway, check our blood sugar levels. We notice it's low. We're going to give them oral glucose. It's one tube of oral glucose, but one tube is not a dose. The dosage, one tube is 15 grams. So a whole tube is 15 grams. So the dosage of oral glucose is 15 grams per single dose. Consult protocols for the indication level. In our area, their sugar does have to be below 70. So they have to be below 70 and they have to be symptomatic in order for us to give oral glucose. To me, a patient complaining kind of, hey, I don't feel good and I know my sugar is low, that is symptomatic. So I'm going to treat that. Oral glucose, it's gel that is absorbed quickly, that's increasing the blood glucose level. And oral glucose, may only be administered if all of the patient's conditions are met. Symptomatic, alterminal status typically, history of diabetes controlled by medication or any other uh, reason why their blood sugar is below 70. 
And again, they have to have the ability to swallow the medication. One method is to administer the oral glucose is discrete, squeeze the tube of oral glucose between the patient's cheek and gums. It'll absorb quicker, meaning it'll raise the blood glucose levels quicker as well. Now, this isn't instantaneous. We're not going to give them the oral glucose and all of a sudden see a dramatic spike in their blood glucose levels. It is going to take some time before this starts working. Another treatment, if your protocols allow, is we may be able to give the patient glucagon. Glucagon does not contain glucose, but what it does, it converts glycogen in the liver to glucose. So we give them glucagon, that's signaling the body to convert all of its glycogen into glucose and then release it for the body to use. The spins Region protocols state that we can give glucagon through the MAD device intranasally or through intramuscular injection. Typically relatively slow acting, 13 to 16 minutes to work. So again, not going to be instantaneous. And again, you must have some type of medical authorization to utilize either online med control or standing orders. One problem with glucagon is in, a, in an acute life-threatening situation, we don't care about it. We give it. But glucagon is going to mess up their glucose levels for days and days and days. So if we can avoid giving it, if we can give oral glucose, that's always going to be our go-to. That glucagon, again, that's just if we give it unnecessarily, it's going to extend their hospital stay for probably several days. But again, life-threatening emergency where we can't give oral glucose, that's all, that's our only option. So that's hypoglycemic. Again, rapid onset. So for us, it's always we always consider it much more dangerous than hyperglycemic emergency. So hyperglycemic emergency, we have low insulin levels in the body, so our sugar is going to be elevated. So high blood glucose levels caused by a relative lack of insulin. An extreme hyperglycemic uh, may result in one of the two hyperglycemic emergencies, and that's DKA and HHS. Again, type 1s are prone to DKA, type 2 is HHS. And again, it, it oftentimes it's going to be very high before they we really truly go into DKA or extremely high for them to go into HHS. So DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, again, we typically see this in type 1 diabetics. And for DKA, the blood sugar typically has to be above 350 milligrams per deciliter. So again, pretty significantly high. So without insulin to help move glucose into the cells, cells are getting starved of glucose. Again, it's all staying in the blood. It cannot go into the cells without insulin. So your cells are not getting enough or not getting any type of glucose. So they're going to start to metabolize or burn fat. So they start burning fat instead of glucose. As they're burning fat, that is producing ketones as waste products. 
And these ketones are acidic and they're going to lower the body's pH. So it's going to make them acidotic. Excess, excess sugars and acids are excreted through the urinary system. So again, all that excess of sugar that's in the blood is going to, they're going to start peeing it off along with those ketones. And the diuretic effect of glucose causes frequent and plentiful urination, resulting in dehydration. And again, hyperglycemic emergencies and dehydration tend to go hand in hand. They're going to, if they're hyperglycemic and DKA, they're probably going to be uh, dehydrated as well. So this is in your book. I know it's probably hard to see on the PowerPoint. It's hard for me to see. So we have step one right here. We have a lack of insulin, doesn't allow glucose to enter the cells adequately. So we have plenty of glucose in the blood, but none of it's able to get into the cells. So the cells are still getting deprived of glucose. So they signal the body to release uh, that they need glucose. That causes the liver to convert glycogen to glucose, and that increases the blood sugar even more. So again, we're getting more and more sugar into the blood, but it still cannot get into the cells. Since the cells cannot metabolize glucose because there's no insulin available, instead of metabolizing glucose, it's going to start metabolizing fat. That fat, as it's metabolized, again, is producing ketones, and those ketones are acidic, causing the patient to become acidic. At the same time, that's happening, that excessive uh, sugar in the blood, your body's going to try to get rid of it. It's going to filter out through the kidneys. It's a large molecule, and it's going to drag water with it. So they're going to be urinating heavily, and that is going to cause dehydration. Again, it's just going to keep repeating itself over and over again until it's corrected. So diabetic ketoacidosis, keto, keto, we're producing ketones, and the patient is becoming acidic. So factors that lead to D can lead to DKA. Infections. And patients that get sick with diabetes to get any type of infections, it can wreak havoc and make it very difficult for them to control their blood sugar levels. Inadequate insulin dose. They're not taking enough insulin. Certain medications can also cause this in type 1 diabetics. Physical stress, surgeries, traumas, again, can also make it very difficult for diabetics to regulate their sugar. Or if they're eating poorly, if they're increasing their carbohydrate, how carbohydrate intake, they're eating poorly, not eating what they should, again, that can cause DKA as well. Patient is broke doesn't have medical insurance, can't afford their insulin. Type 1 diabetic, it's going to lead to DKA. So assessment findings in DKA. What The signs and symptoms that we tend to see in DKA is not necessarily because their sugar is high, but it is the signs and symptoms we're starting to see is because they're dehydrated, leading to hypovolemic shock, and because they're getting an increase in acid production. And DKA, hyperglycemic emergencies in general, 
have a very slow progression, several days to even weeks before a patient gets symptomatic. Once their sugar gets really high and they're extremely acidic now because of the ketone production, DKA patients can go into too small respirations. It's a pattern of deep and rapid breathing, and it's the body's attempt to lower their pH, get rid of some of that acid by blowing off carbon dioxide, which is acidic in nature. So we only see too small respirations in DKA patients. We don't see them in HHS patients because they're not acidic in HHS. Again, one way your body tries to regulate its acid base, your, their pH is through their respirations. So if their pH is starting to low, they're becoming acidic, they're going to start breathing faster and try to blow off carbon dioxide, more and more carbon dioxide, which in turn is going to cause their pH to try to go closer back to normal. So sound symptoms of DKA related to dehydration, polyuria, frequent urination, polydipsia, uh, constant uh, thirst, poor skin turgor. Someone tell me what skin turgor is. So how we check skin turgor is we will grab the back of the patient's hand and we'll pull up on just on their skin. Skin turgor refers to when we release it, how quickly it goes back down flat. If we pinch it and let go and it stays up and it's very slow to go back down to normal, we call that poor skin turgor and it's an indication of dehydration. So tachycardia, positive tilt test or orthostatic bottle sign. Nausea, vomiting, muscle cramps are typical due to electrolyte disturbances from the loss of sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And that ketone, since they're producing ketones, they can also get what is re referred to as a fruity odor on their breath. And anytime for like patients, uh, uh, testing, you ever hear somebody describe patients having a fruity odor on their breath? It's probably because they are in DKA. It says fruity odor. I've smelt ketones on their breath. It doesn't smell a fruity odor. It's a very distinct smell, but it smells like ass. It does not smell sweet or fruity for sure. So our treatment for DKA. Ain't nothing we can do for DKA. It's going to be supportive measures only. Establish and maintain a patent airway. Administer oxygen, maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. Positive pressure ventilations if needed. If they're in too small respirations, we do not want to override those ventilations. They're going to be breathing adequately, first of all. But we don't want to override those ventilations because they're trying to regulate their own pH. Determine the blood glucose levels. If it's high, they're stable, just showing signs of dehydration. We're going to treat it like we would any other patient, showing signs and symptoms of dehydration. Supportive measures are all we're going to be able to do. If you're not sure of the condition, so let's say we get this, get on a condition, we have a diabetic patient. We're not sure if this is hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. We don't know if it's DKA, or whatever the case may be. We go to check the blood sugar. Oh, crap, our glucometer is broken. 
So we don't know for sure if it's hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. If we don't know the difference for sure, we don't know, we're going to treat it like hypoglycemia. So we're going to give the patient more glucose if they're able to swallow. The reason being is hypoglycemia is going to kill them fast. Hyperglycemia is going to kill them slow. So again, if we can't determine the difference, we're going to treat it like it's the one that's going to kill them fast. So we'll give them oral glucose. Realistically, shouldn't happen. Most ambulances carry at least two glucometers on their truck. So long as you're checking off your truck, this shouldn't be an issue. Also, you can oftentimes guess pretty ac accurately by questioning the patient to determine if it's hypo or hyperglycemia. Insulin is not a pre-hospital medication, so we will not carry it and we will not assist a patient taking their own insulin. This needs to be done in a regulated setting in the hospitals. So it's high, they need to go to the hospital, let the hospital worry about make, giving them an insulin. We can consider ALS for backup for fluid replacement therapy. Paramedics, same thing. We do not give insulin at the paramedic level. We'll start an IV on them and we're going to give them a fluid bolus, but the only thing we're really treating with the fluid bolus is the dehydration. We're not really trying to fix or correct because we can't the sugar levels. So we're going to start an IV giving fluid, but all we're doing is trying to treat the dehydration. So that was DKA, typically in type 1 diabetes. Also have HHS, hyperglycemic hyperosmolar syndrome. Again, HHS is kind of the newer terminology, typically what it's referred to. But we may also see it called HHNS, which is hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketonic syndrome. And again, DKA is in type 1s. HHS is in type 2. So the big difference between the two is that in type 2 diabetes, their body is still producing some insulin, just not enough. So that means their body is still able to use some, some of the glucose, so they're not getting as much ketone production as they do in DKA to the point where it's not causing the patient to become acidic. So we're not getting major shifts in their pH. Enough insulin prevent present to allow the use of glucose, prevent ketone production from use of fats for energy. That's also where you get the non-ketonic part from the HHNS. So with HHS, again, they're still burning fat. It's just not enough to really get large amounts of ketones. It's not enough to cause them to become acidic. However, since they're not becoming acidic, the patient is not going to get asymptomatic early on. So for them to truly be in HHS, their blood sugars are going to be extremely high, 600 to 1,200 milligrams per deciliter or even higher than that. Our glucose, I think, glucometers go up to like 750. So we put this on a patient with HHS, and all we're going to get is a high reading on our glucometer. That's what it's going to say. Instead of giving this number, it's just going to say high. Glucose is still getting excreted from the urine with large amounts of water. They get that hyperosmolar effect. So again, dehydration is going to be a real concern. And again, since they're not getting acidotic, they're going to go a lot longer. The sugar is going to get 
much higher before they become symptomatic. So once their sugars get this high, it does carry a higher mortality rate than DKA. The exact same thing is happening in the body, except for the fact that there is enough insulin being produced by the body that they're not getting as much ketone production, so they're not going into acidosis. That's the big difference. So signs and symptoms of HHS. It's going to be very similar to those to DKA, except for the indications that we're having acid loads. So there's no significant buildup of ketones in the body, no significant acid load. So DKA, we get two small respirations. Well, since we're not having problems with the pH and uh, HHS, we're not going to get two small respirations. And we won't get the fruity odor on the breath with HHS. Care for HHS. Establish and maintain a patent airway. Administ it's going to be supportive measures. Administer oxygen if SpO2 satchel less than 94. Patient's not breathing adequately on their own. We're going to ventilate. Check blood sugar. And again, just like we talked about previously, we don't know for sure if it's or there's a doubt in our mind whether it's hypo or hyperglycemia. Give them the oral glucose. Again, oral glucose, if it is hypoglycemia, it can save their lives. If it turns out to be hyperglycemia, that 15 grams of oral glucose with sugar that's already 700, it ain't going to do much. It's not going to harm them uh, any more than what they're already doing to themselves. And consider ALS backup. Again, we're not going to give them insulin or we're not going to give them any medications to lower sugar. All we're going to do is start an IV to try to treat the dehydration. Again, table 20-2 talks about the differences between DKA, HHS, and hypoglycemia. You need to understand this. So hyperglycemic emergencies, again, are going to be these first two, and then we have hypo. Onset. Hyperglycemic emergencies have a slow onset. Hypoglycemic is sudden. Hyperglycemic, all of them tend to have tachycardia. These two, because they're dehydrated, Going into shock, dehydrated or non-hemorrhagic hypoglycemic shock. This one because it, um, epinephrine is getting released. Blood pressure, DKA tends to be low. HHS tends to be low. Hypoglycemic tends to be normal. Respirations, again, we only see two small respirations in DKA. We get normal respirations in HHS. Hypoglycemic tend to get normal, maybe a little bit shallow, again, because of the epinephrine release. Breath odors, again, the only abnormality is for DKA because of ketone production. Mental status, DKA is coma, unresponsiveness. That's a very late sign. We have a hyperglycemic emergency patient that is completely unresponsive. That's telling us they're extremely bad off. Uh, they can get confusion as their sugars elevate, hypoglycemia, bizarre behavior, agitated, aggressive, altered, completely unresponsive. Oral mucosa, again, Hyperglycemic emergencies are going to be dehydrated, so they're going to be dry. Hypoglycemia, they're going to be normal or salivating. Thirst, hyperglycemic emergencies, they're going to complain of a constant thirst. Hypoglycemic, they're not going to be complaining of it. 
Vomiting is common for hyperglycemic emergencies. It's uncommon for hypoglycemic emergencies. Abdominal pain is common with DKA. It's uncommon for HHS and won't happen in uh, hypoglycemic. Know this down here too. Insulin levels, again, inversely proportionate or related to sugar levels. So if the insulin levels are low, sugar is going to be high. So they'll be in a hyperglycemic emergency. If they have high insulin levels, that means their sugar is going to be low and it's going to be a hypoglycemic emergency. And very bottom gives you the normal glucose readings. Care is going to be supportive for all of them, except for hypoglycemic. If they're able to swallow, we're going to give them oral glucose. If they're unable to swallow, it's supportive, possibly giving glucagon if our protocols allow. And what the patient actually needs for hyperglycemic emergencies, they need insulin to lower their sugar. For hypoglycemic emergencies, they need glucose to raise it up. So our assessment-based approach for altered mental status. Scene size up primary assessment. Look for medical clues, medical alert tags. Very common type of patient that, that we see that has a medical alert tag is diabetic patients. So they may have that medical alert tag. Never seen a medical alert tattoo or other medical identification. They may have an insulin pump as well. So if we see that insulin pump, we know they're a diabetic. Aggressive management of the ABCs. If their O2 sats are less than 94%, treat them with supplemental O2. Again, there's your medical alert bracelet. One side will have that type of logo, something similar to it on the inside of it. We'll actually have their diagnosis written on it. Secondary assessment, get your full sample. Go deeper, questions that we're going to want to know. Has the patient taken their diabetic medications? Have they been eating regularly? Have they been eating like they should? Have you vomited? Have you done anything or increased your physical activity? You've been working outside more, exercising more, et cetera. So based on what the patient tells us, again, even if we don't have a glucometer, that may indicate what we think is going on with the patient, whether it's hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic. So if the patient has taken their insulin like they normally do, has eaten like they normally do, but has exercised profusely today out of their normal, that should tell us that they're probably hypoglycemic. Their body's needing more glucose, so they burn through their glucose faster. Patient accidentally took two doses of insulin, we know they're going to be hypoglycemic. Patient has eaten, but has not taken their medications, whether it be oral medications or whether it be insulin, we know it's probably going to be hyperglycemic in that case. Patient's been sick, vomiting lately, and but has still been taking their insulin like they've been prescribed. Expect it probably going to be low. They dropped their food intake or they're eating fine, but they're throwing it right back up. So we know their glucose is going to be low. Elderly patients uh, frequently suffer signs and symptoms that mimic a stroke, such as weakness or paralysis on one side of the body. Also, keep in mind, we talked a little bit about this in shock, 
Certain medications like beta blockers can mask signs and symptoms of epinephrine release. Beta blockers will prevent the heart rate from speeding up. Establish and maintain an open airway. Again, supplemental O2. Patient's not breathing adequately. Provide uh, positive pressure ventilations. If it's a hypoglycemic emergency and the patient is able to swallow, we can give them 15 grams of oral glucose, again, which is the whole tube. From that, we're going to transport and consider ALS backup as well. We typically, there's no, typically there's no max dose of oral glucose, so we're just going to keep feeding them tubes of oral glucose until their sugar increases. Reassessment, determine if the patient, if the administration of glucose has improved mental status. But again, oral glucose can be very slow to act and may take up to 20 minutes. If mental status does not improve, but we're getting good mental, or hang on. So we give them more glucose, we still have low blood sugar, and a patient hasn't had any change in mental status. Again, consult medical direction by administering more glucose. Or protocols may indicate we can give up to three or tubes or glucose, whatever the case may be. But let's say we give them more glucose, their sugar comes back up to a normal range, but now they're still altered with a normal BGL. Now we should start considering other possible causes of the altered mental status. So key points on diabetes. Make sure that we know how to use the glucometers at our service. And again, you need to know if glucometer fails, breaks, whatever the case may be, should know how to treat the patient properly without a glucometer. Again, that's just kind of based on history and presentation. Again, patient states they've taken insulin, but hasn't been eating. We know it's going to be hypoglycemic, et cetera. We should know what to suspect based on what the patient is telling us. And when in doubt, again, if we don't know if it's hypo or hyperglycemic, when in doubt, give sugar. Hypoglycemia kills rapidly. Hyperglycemia kills slowly. And again, if their sugar is 600, 15 grams of oral glucose is going to raise it, but it's not going to do any more damage than what's already been doing done, being done. And diabetes can have other issues as well. So again, don't get solely tunnel vision. Make sure that we are doing a good thorough assessment on our patient. So diabetes is a problem related to regulation of blood glucose levels. Hypoglycemia is the state of low blood glucose levels. And if we are running on a hypoglycemic patient and they're able to swallow the medication, the treatment of choice is oral glucose. 15 grams. Hyperglycemic problems result from a relative lack of insulin causing an increase in blood sugar. And make sure you know this, type 1 diabetics are prone to DKA, type 2 diabetics are prone to HHS. All right, any question 